0: New Books in Economics brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. I'm your host, Andrea Bernardi, from Oxford Brooks University. And today I'm joined by Ellie Cook, who uh, is uh, joining us from Israel, and we are here to present you a beautiful new book called The Pricing of Progress. This has been published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Welcome, Ellie. Thanks for being here. And can you please uh, tell us something about your current affiliation and your background?
1: Yes, of course. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, too. Thank you. Uh, So I'm an assistant professor in the history department at uh, Haifa University in Israel. And um, the way I, my background, I uh, got my uh, uh, first degree at Tel Aviv University in economics and in history, kind of a double major. And then I got my Ph.D. at Harvard and I was affiliated with, this was the very beginning of what is now known as kind of like the history of capitalism program there.
0: What well, is is a very interesting uh, background, in particular because uh, of uh, what has been happening in the past five, 10 years, uh, a, a rediscovery of the importance of history in economics. And this is, uh, for example, due to the successful book of uh, Piketty. Uh, but this is something happening also in other fields, for example, in my own field in management and organization studies. Um, but I wanted to start from the very end of the book, which is the last chapter, a very short chapter. So this is clearly not the focus of the book. But uh, I think it would be an interesting start to talk about the when the GDP was born. So this book is about how we measure our well-being, how we measure our wealth, how we measure the dimension of, the, of our economies and our, how our societies and our economies are doing. Well, the last chapter is about the birth of the GDP, which everybody knows. Uh, but not that everybody know how this was born, uh, Who invented it and when this was developed. And after that, we can go back a couple of centuries uh, before to trace the origin of this.
1: Yes. So um, I purposely built the book so that the last kind of epilogue really at the very end is only when GDP gets invented, because one of the basically the main arguments of the book is that to under to understand GDP and to understand this pricing of progress and why we've come to measure the welfare and the well-being and the progress of society by how much income it produces. uh, To me, this is really a much bigger story. It's not a story just about macroeconomics. And economic expertise, but it's really a story about the rise of capitalism. Uh, but so, in many ways, the books that have been written, and if I'm not mistaken, I think someone told me that last week, a half a dozen books have come out about GDP in the last few years. And so, I think most of those books, uh, not all of them, but most of the books kind of they share the same model. They kind of Usually give like a little gesture, a hat tip to William Petty, the father of political arithmetic in the seventeenth century, but then they really turn their focus onto the rise of GDP in the twentieth century. And so, what I purposely wanted to do in my book was kind of start start much earlier and really have the invention of GDP be like the final act of this story. And um, so, in the epilogue, I talk briefly about the rise of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and um, that's really the institution in the United States that. That design GDP, and again, I try to kind of, you know, contextualize this this institution and like what's going on at that particular moment in American history. So, to just to give you an example, what I do there is I try to show that uh, one of the reasons that these guys like um, John Rockefeller Jr. and J.P. Morgan and all these other kind of basically really big capitalists, uh, one of the reasons they decide to fund the National Bureau of Economic Research, and while The NBER might sound to some of us like a public institution. I assure you it's not. It's a private one. Uh, So one of the reasons they did this was really because they were feeling a crisis of legitimacy. uh, And they were feeling that these kind of like income generating statistics, this national income uh, accounting, and in general price statistics, uh, might kind of help them uh, sell capitalism, I guess you could say, to the public. So it was important to me to kind of show that even here at the kind of moment of birth of this institution and later, a few years later of uh, GNP, of course, not GNP. There was there, this was a very politicized uh, uh, moment. So you know, I talked instance, in that very brief section on the epilogue about, uh, for instance, what's called known as the Ludlow massacre, which was this um, uh, big uh, coal strike that ended up uh, actually uh, where Rockefeller and a few other of his um, men ended up uh, uh, killing, uh, uh, not Rockefeller directly, of course, but ended up uh, uh, killing uh, women and children in these coal fields. And that was kind of like one of the impetus, not the only one, of course, but that was definitely one of the impetus I feel. And this is from the archives, and this just reading you know Rockefeller's Archives and other people, that this was kind of really pushing uh, them to decide that they really need this constitution that will show that you know capitalism produces wealth and growth and well-being and progress and so forth.
0: in that epilogue, there is uh, an interesting. Uh... Uh, part of the epilogue that uh, is about uh, uh, human capital. Basically, if I can quote you, you say the invention of GDP was the final step, not only in the pricing of progress, but also the capitalization of American life. And then you discuss how human capital becomes something we use very frequently without realizing what are the implications of defining uh, workers as human capital. In the book also, you don't mention, uh, but everybody must be familiar with this. the current crisis of the GDP, or at least uh, the current attempts to invent new forms of measuring our well-being. Uh, many governments in Europe are trying to, uh, to do this, and there have been uh, committees with uh, uh, important economists like Amartya Sen in the G- in the United Kingdom, and there is an attempt to, to reform, or at least to provide additional measurements. The OECD is producing now the Better Life Index, uh, Italy has tried to uh, implement the Better Life Index in the, in the, nas- in the um, budget annually. This is the first time this has been done in the G7 and Europe. Anyway, but they, they have been, uh, so far, not very successful attempts to uh, change the paradigm for, away from the GDP. But now, let's go back a few centuries to the beginning of your story. How far we go back in time to to trace the origin of pricing progress?
1: So before we go back, just a few things about your excellent comments. Uh, So first of all, about uh, um, kind of like these other metrics. So throughout the book, I try to show that throughout history there are all these alternative ways of measuring progress. But what basically what I say at the end of the book, and this is kind of again goes back to the main argument, where the rise of GDP and this pricing of progress is you know intertwined with the rise of capitalism. And what I basically try to say there is that you can't just suddenly come along and without changing the real structures of a society, suddenly say, you know what, we're going to measure now progress through happiness. Uh, That's (laughs) just just not how it works. There's a reason why capitalist societies measure well-being and progress through, you know, uh, national income and how much money you generate. And so I think the last line of the book or one of the last lines of the book is basically, you know, it's not just going to be enough. If people are interested in kind of alternatives to GDP, it's not going to be enough to change the metrics. Uh, we need to change our world. Um, so, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why we're going to see that just changing these metrics, no matter how wonderful. And I, I'm a big fan of you know these human development indices and all everything like that. I think they can be very important. But until you know employment is or you know somebody's job is dependent on you know how much the human employment, human development index is going to rise, I, I, I don't know uh, how you know effective they're going to be. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other thing you mentioned, my my use of the term capitalization and here because I'm, you know, talking to economists, it's it's important to me to make a few points here because I think uh, uh, economists use the word in a very specific way. And I just want to be clear about this. So I use the word a lot in the book. uh, And what I mean here is sometimes I use it quite literally in the ways that I think uh, economists uh, are familiar with it, which basically means capitalization as a way of taking, you know, future uh, flows of income and translating them, discounting them using interest rate calculations and so forth, and capitalizing them into calculating like a net present value. In other words, how much is something worth now? And one of the arguments that I make in the book is this idea of imagining things as assets, as capital, that generate this income and then valuing them according to, you know, how much income they're going to generate in the future is actually quite unique to capitalism. We don't see these kind of things, you know, before capitalism. Um, but it's important for me to say that in the book, I also use capitalization more broadly. And basically, one of the main arguments I try to make in the book, and you know, I use examples throughout history, and we'll get to that in a second, is that um, one of the reasons that we've developed these income statistics uh, like GDP is because we've come to imagine our society as an income-generating investment. And by capitalization, in this case, I actually need something more broader than just the actual, you know, calculation, but basically imagining things as capital. So it can be human capital, where we imagine he- people as capital in the sense that we measure their value and their progress by how many, much m- money they make. Uh, or it can be, you know, the capital of space. It can be the capitalization of nature. Throughout the book, I give, you know, an assortment of, of examples of what this kind of capitalization means. And to get back to your last question um, about when this all began, well, I definitely agree with those earlier histories that focused on William Petty, because when I went back to the 17th century, and William Petty has this famous article in 1662, where he really does invent national income accounting, uh, but what was struck me about that first foray into national income, income accounting for Petty was that he was doing it. Uh, in many of the ways that I anticipated, in the sense that he was really imagining society as a capital investment. So just to give you one example, uh, in order to calculate, you know, the wealth of the nation and the income, he really, he divided into land and labor. He kind of calculated how much income the land produces in a year, how much income uh, people produce in a year, labor produces. And then he not only stopped there, but he actually then kind of calculated that each person in a in, in England at this period produces about seven pence of, of, of money a day, and then he capitalized them. This, again, using the term literally now, and he actually kind of used all these different forms of capitalization techniques that were just emerging in 17th century in England in order to calculate that the average Englishman was worth about 140 pounds.
0: Well, this is uh, impressive because this is a clearly a history book, but there are also there is a lot of political economy in in the way you explain the developments. Uh, but also there is uh, the conflict between England and the United States, between the southern and the northern states. So we see how the evolution of our notion of progress and the ability to uh, determine our wealth is connected to historical events that happen around the actor. So it's not about only the, the technical device of measuring and the best possible technical way of measuring.
1: Absolutely. It was very important. So one of the things that you know sometimes frustrated me a little bit, if we go back to the William Petty example, is that you know people talk about the rise of the scientific revolution and and Francis Bacon and all these different influences the enlightenment that had on Petty but for me the real riddle was why is it suddenly in the 17th century that William Petty is using back then it was called years of purchase these these unique ways of of calculating uh, the value of an asset according to how much income it generates in the future to me this was you know this is very modern and what's going on here and so what i did in the first chapter is i linked William Petty to really the rise of the enclosure movement in, in in England in order to show that you don't get this kind of capitalization, you don't get GDP, you don't get this kind of notion of, uh, you know, measuring progress by looking at how much uh, income is generated in society if you don't have capital investment. And so sure enough, what's happening in 17th century England is that, uh, you know, land is really becoming a capitalized investment, and people are beginning to value land in those very years of purchase calculations that Petty would later use in order to capitalize human beings. So, you know, we all know the story about enclosure and how, you know, this feudal system uh, in which society was kind of organized according to tradition and moral obligations and all different kinds of things. We really see how, you know, um, these the peasants are torn off the land and, 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 it, and land really becomes an asset. It becomes a rent-seeking asset where people now are beginning to value land, uh, not in these traditional ways, but rather how much rent am I going to get a year from this you know, piece of land that I own? Um, and then what I do for the rest of the book is, again, I try to show that if you want to follow the story about how the rise of GDP and the rise of the pricing of progress, you really need to follow the capital. So um, I'm an American historian. I focus mostly in the United States. So what I do is after William Petty, I kind of shift to the United States. And there, for instance, in my second chapter, I show that Alexander Hamilton, who, you know, he's become a big star now on Broadway. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was writing this uh, report on manufacturing, this very famous report. Uh, That is, until today, famous in which he was trying to legitimize why America needs to bring industry and the industrial revolution to to American shores. Uh, But what people don't know is that Hamilton really wanted there to be a statistical appendix in this uh, report on manufacturing. And so what he did is he sent all these letters out across America to farmers, artisans, everyday people. Basically asking them to, you know, calculate their income generating revenue, their productivity, you know, uh, how much do they make in in a year? And um, Hamilton was very disappointed by the results that he got because back then, and we're talking about the late 18th century, Americans didn't view or price the world as Hamilton did. And so, again, I was left with the riddle of, well, why did Hamilton uh, think this way? Where was he coming from? And so that really took me down a different track because what people don't know often about Alexander Hamilton is that he was not American. He was born in the Caribbean and he grew up basically on an island, St. Croix. It was then owned by Denmark, which was 95 percent populated by slaves. And more importantly, for my argument, the island itself was basically one giant capitalized investment. It was absentee uh, capitalists who often lived in England or uh, had – and 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 they were, you know, running this island uh, through their slaves and their overseers as, you know, as a business. And so I think even though Alexander Hamilton uh, wasn't supportive of slavery, this is the world that he grew up in. And so I trace it in other ways that he's reading William Petty. He's reading these other, um, uh, 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 like Malachi Postlewhite, another guy who was involved with the Royal African Company. So here, you know, if the first step was like enclosure in England, the second step, I argue... Uh, was Caribbean slavery. But then throughout the book, it's all sorts of different forms of capital investment that keep cropping up and emerging to tell this story. So it can be real estate investment, and later it becomes cotton slavery, railroads play an enormous role, And then later in the book, towards the end, the book uh, gets into like machinery, industrial machinery. And But throughout, I try to show how these economic, political, historical developments are also shaping the way that people use uh, economic indicators and shaping the way people measure progress. So,
0: the, to what extent the industrial revolution was the reason uh, why this became the dominant paradigm? Could it happen also in a farm economy, in a agricultural economy? or um, because for example in chapter 3 the spirit of non-capitalism they say this resistance yeah. to the introduction of a, a capitalist measurement uh, was possible there was a way to resist uh, the capitalization or this was or this was a lost battle from the beginning
1: Oh no, I, I definitely don't think it was a lost battle from the beginning. Um, I don't know if it's an issue of agriculture versus industry necessarily, because certainly, as I was mentioning, you know, England and Enclosed England and and um, the Caribbean; these are agricultural societies, but they're capitalist agricultural societies. Um, so, yeah, what I do in the third chapter is basically to get back to Alexander Hamilton. He's getting these letters, and people just, you know are not, most Americans are not seeing the world as he is. And so then my I had another question I need to answer, why? Why didn't people in America view the world like Alexander Hamilton? And basically the argument I make there is that it's not a question of markets. Uh, there are certainly markets in early America. America, in fact, in many ways, was one of the most commodified societies of, at, on earth, even by the end of the 18th century. Land was commodified. We know human beings were commodified in the form of slaves. Uh, but the argument that I make in that chapter is that while there was commodities, there wasn't so much capital, and that's really the key to my argument. So just to give you an example, uh, while in England, land had become a capital because people were seeing it as a rent-earning investment, so they could really imagine you know, how much rent, how much money they could extract from their land every year. In the United States, for, you know, various reasons, um, United States developed in a very different way where um, about 80% of the land was worked by the very people who owned it. So you didn't get this kind of rentier system as you did in England. And mm-hmm. therefore, these people did not think of their land as capitalized assets. They didn't think of it that way. This was the land that they worked. It was part of their independence. Mm-hmm. It was part of their kind of like proprietary um, identity. And so really, I mean, to make a long story short, that was one of the more bigger, that's one of the main reasons why you don't always see these forms uh, of capitalization emerge. It really has to do with where the capital is. And I make a similar argument actually about slavery in the United States. And basically what I argue there is that while tobacco slavery, if you look back to t- at tobacco slavery, you don't actually see these kind of forms of, 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 of income generating measurements or you know the pricing of progress. Um, but in cotton slavery, by the mid-19th century, you do. And again, very briefly, the argument I make there is that while slaves in tobacco slavery and in early America were certainly seen as pieces of property, I argue that they weren't yet exactly viewed or valued as pieces of capital. In other words, this capitalization progress pro- process more broadly that I talk about hadn't really taken off. Uh, but, you know, working on the history of cotton slavery... And the slaves there, it it becomes very often, very obvious. And this is, you know, work that my advisor Sven Beckert, and other historians have been working on for the last few years, where you really see, you know, the capitalization of the slave and the fact that uh, they can oftentimes be mortgaged, they're being financialized, you can get them life insurance. Uh, People are very, very carefully calculating, you know, their their productivity. And so that, to me, is the moment, one of the moments where you really get to see kind of the rise of this pricing of progress uh, in the South. Uh, In the North, on the other hand, it absolutely has a lot to do with the Industrial Revolution. And there I focus mostly on on railroads and later on kind of, you know, on textile and factories and other forms of industrialization. But absolutely, in that sense, the Industrial Revolution played a significant role.
0: Still in this chapter three, we can read the the cost, the value of, uh, of slaves and here nearby in Liverpool there is a a museum of of slavery and there are also academics at the University of of Liverpool that work on the economics of of slavery and uh, yes this is a a very sad story. Uh, So I understand correctly that there was a divergence between the north and the south, the northern and the southern states in uh, approaching uh, the measurement and in approaching the notion of capitalism.
1: Uh, no, actually, there wasn't really a diversion. So, um, so what, what? When you talked about the Civil War and arguments about the North and the South, um, what I discovered in the book is that a great way to look at how societies measure progress is in the, in America is by looking at how the North and the South used to argue about which society was better. You know, and from the beginning of the nineteenth century, or early nineteenth century, you see that both in the North and in the South both sides are often using statistics in order to show that their society is more advanced. But what's fascinating is that in the early to mid-19th century, so we're talking here about the 1820s, the 1830s, even the 1840s, uh, the dominant form of statistics that both the North and the South are using in order to legitimize their society are statistics that are called moral statistics. Now this is a term that his people are using back then. It's a term that they took from England and from France. It's very popular in, in Europe in these days. And moral statistics, just to give some examples, are, you know, metrics on prostitution, education, libraries, pauperism. Insanity was a very big one. crime, incarceration rates. So I give a lot of examples in the book. When someone, let's say, in the North in the 1830s wants to prove to the South that his society is better, he says, well, look how many, you know, scholars we have and look at our literacy rates. But what's interesting is that the South at the same time is doing the exact same thing. When they wanted to show to the North, you know, what advancement their society is, they say, oh, but look how many people you have in prison up North, look at your incarceration rates, look at your insanity rates and things like that. So basically what I try to show in that chapter is that until around the 1850s, which by the way, the 1850s is kind of the turning point of the whole book, but until around the 1850s, um, it's the moral statistics that are the dominant form of social me- measurement in America. And they're the ones that are, people are using in political debates, they're the ones that people are using in newspapers in order to legitimize their society. But then what I see is, and this is what really kind of struck me, is around 1850 I see a shift both in the north and in the south. And around 1850, you begin to see that both in the north and in the south, both of these societies, and I should say the elites of these societies, it's not everyone, are beginning to use, again, this kind of pricing of progress, these new forms of kind of, you know, price statistics and specifically kind of income and market output and productivity statistics in order to legitimize their society. So for instance, there's a best-selling book in 1857 that comes out by a man named Hinton Helper, and he's against slavery, and his whole book, his whole argument is not, you know, is all about that slavery is bad because it's inefficient, because it's unproductive. And page after page, he compares the free states To the slave states and he uses all of these market output market productivity statistics things that are in many ways very similar to gdp uh in order to show hey guys look we can get more bang for our buck uh if we didn't have slaves Uh, on the other hand the south is doing the exact same thing so um for instance uh south carolina senator james henry hammond he has this famous speech cotton is king in 1858 and in that speech he says you know in order to legitimize his society says uh, well, the South, you know, is much more advanced. Look at us. We, our productivity is $16 per capita per head. In other words, you know, we, each person here creates uh, $16 worth of wealth a year. So, so again, we see how both societies are shifting at the same time. So it's really interesting. It's actually a divergence. And that's what kind of got me to the question of, well, why are they shifting at the same time? What's happening in the 1850s in the North and the South that's making them shift to these new forms of measurement, and the short answer I argue is again it goes back to the rise of capitalism. in in the in the, in the South it's kind of as I mentioned it's the shift or really the development of of of, of cotton slavery and the capitalization of a slave into really you know uh, uh, imagining him and valuing his capital. And in the North it's the railroads. Um, I'll just talk briefly about the railroads so you can get a sense of why I feel the railroads are important here. Um, So the argument I make here basically is that when an investor in, for instance, England or even in New York, a capitalist, he needs to decide, you know, if he wants to build a railroad, say, between, I don't know, Chicago and Detroit or between Chicago and St. Louis, he's not going to care about moral statistics. He's not going to care how many prostitutes are in Detroit or how many drunks are in Chicago. What he really wants to know is how many people are there, how productive are they, how much income are they going to generate, and is it worth it for me to invest here in a railroad? And so what I show is I go into the archives and I go into all the different forms of basically they were called prospectuses back then, railroad prospectuses. These are basically documents that these entrepreneurs in Detroit, they were called boosters back then, but entrepreneurs in Detroit, Chicago, and places like that, they were developing and basically in order to sell their railroad, to, um, to the larger American and European public. And again, to make a long story short, because you know, there's a whole book about this that I wrote. I argue that as you know, American and British and European elites got swept up in this kind of love for investing in railroad stocks and railroad bonds, they began to imagine Americans a lot like they appeared in these prospectuses. In other words, they began to see them as these kind of money generating assets or money generating
0: units. Well, this is supremely interesting and fascinating. So, uh, the south and the and the north, uh, uh, through different uh, ways, uh, converged in the same direction. In particular, after 1850, converged towards uh, a, a capital way of measuring uh, the economy. This is very interesting. Uh, but if I can go back to the moral statistics for a while, so you are arguing that uh, what the OECD or the United Nations Development Programme have developed, could be called moral statistics, and basically are the same of what we had until 1850?
1: Uh, not exactly the same. So it's important to me not to romanticize moral statistics. So if for everyone who's read Michel Foucault and knows about these moral statistics, these were, you know, not the most innocent forms of statistical measurement. They were often used by elites to discipline workers, to try to control them. You know They would try to keep track of how many went to church and how many uh, weren't drinking and, and you know that they weren't you know, doing things you know, that they weren't supposed to do and things like that. So in that sense, moral statistics aren't the most innocent statistics in the world. But I do agree with you in the sense that, and this is one of the arguments that I try to make in the book, that nevertheless, uh, these moral statistics measured the welfare of a society By looking at the physical, the mental, the spiritual, uh, and of course the social condition of the human beings themselves. In other words, these metrics focused first and foremost on the people. So I have a line, I think, in the book that says, you know, their unit of measure was bodies and minds, not dollars and cents. And one of the arguments that I definitely make in the book, and this is why I do agree with you that there is. Uh, definitely a similarity between these forms of statistics and these human development indices that we see today is that unlike the pricing of progress, unlike these kind of proto-GDP figures that we get le- later, uh, the human being and you know people were kind of in the center of this statistical vision, whereas with GDP, uh, people become almost a means to an end, where the end, of course, is now generating money. And so instead of you know measuring the condition of human beings, how they're doing, uh, uh, are, are they, do they feel good, are they physical physically okay, what's their life expectancy, are they under stress, things like that, really with the rise of these kind of proto-GDP statistics, all you really care about is how much money they're producing. Now, it is important for me to say that, of course, in, in certain moments in history, in many moments, in fact, uh, GDP has led... To all of those other things GDP has led to higher life expectancies and in general, I think a better life, but that is still was always the secondary concern that was never the goal. The goal in these statistics has always been to maximize market productivity. And here to mention, you know, what you talked about earlier about kind of like, you know, economic history and the return of economic history, I found this new book by Robert Gordon really fascinating because there, I think his book is called, you know, something like The History of Economic Growth, because there he makes an interesting argument where there were moments in American history, mainly in the end of the 19th to beginning 20th century, where economic growth really did lead to a remarkable improvement in human welfare. But there are other moments in American history, and I think we're maybe in one of those moments now, where actually economic growth is being driven a lot by finance or by real estate or by other, you know, maybe, you know, the iPhone 9 becoming the iPhone 10. And there I actually do think that these are the moments where measuring a society according to how much kind of income it produces might not reflect uh, the social well-being of people. And of course, behind all this is a very basic notion that runs through my entire book, And that is the problem or one of the problems with the rise of GDP isn't just that it kind of reverses the means to end the ends, but also that it erases things that aren't measured by money. Uh, So things like, you know, uh, insanity or, you know, mental problems, uh, stress, things like that uh, oftentimes don't appear in, you know, these these pricing of progress statistics.
0: Well, this is very interesting. By the way, uh, we've been talking about the limits of the GDP now for a long time, uh, I think the most famous early critique uh, was that of Bob Kennedy, and we were uh, still in the late 60s. Uh, but yes. what you said now, what you said now, let me think about um, an interesting case of political dilemma, which is China, which is formally still a socialist, Marxist uh, society country. Um, but uh, uh, now very much a market economy, and very much, uh, uh, not yet a capitalist nation probably, but still uh, very much a market economy. And uh, even in the planning of, um, um, and in the political discourse of China, uh, a key point is that, uh, yes, there are some freedoms which are Uh, limited, but uh, there is a a, a development of human life, uh, even within the same generation and um, life expectancy, education, healthcare, and all all that is incorporated in the human development index is going much faster in China compared to similar countries, for example, compared to to India. So in a country which is uh, the contradiction between Marxism and a market economy, Uh, you have uh, the GDP and the human development index, which are converging towards uh, the same direction, which is justifying uh, that the the means uh, are, let's say, more important than than the ends or that the ends can justify the the means.
1: Yes. So uh, about China, just one thing that I found fascinating during my research and I didn't know about is that um, one of the main ways that you kind of get promoted in the Communist Party today in China is if you're kind of like some kind of regional governor or regional, you know, director of a certain area, uh, they look at the GDP rates in your region. And if you don't have high GDP rates, uh, you're not going to climb the ladders of the Communist Party. So it's pretty amazing that, you know, this is supposedly a communist country, but that like the way to kind of make your way up to the, to the top of the hierarchy is is by uh, maximizing GDP. Um, and just one what, more thing yeah, about GD kind of limits to GDP yeah uh, just one more thing about the limits of gdp and 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 one other thing that's important for me to talk about in this regard, and this is something that people uh, this is something I talk about in my later chapters, is that the other problem with GDP is that it usually doesn't measure distribution. so um it, it in fact, it kind of sometimes when we do per capita statistics, it almost assumes this kind of equality amongst people, you know, well, we all produce more or less the same, which means we all probably earn a much more or less the same. and of course, uh, we know that's not true, and and so what we see at the end of the 19th century, actually, and this is, I think would be interesting to people who have read Piketty, is I've I've discovered a number of people, uh, economists, uh, bureaucrats, uh, uh, some union uh, workers, uh, who are kind of developing, you know, these new forms of inequality statistics, uh, and they're really kind of fighting the people who are, you know, developing these more, you know, GDP-like, you know, productivity statistics for the power to kind of decide what kind of metrics are really going to become, you know, the, the most important metrics in a society. And, and to make a long story short, they lose. Um, so there's one guy I discovered, Charles Farr, uh, who did his PhD at Columbia in the 1890s. He writes this dis- dis- he writes a dissertation on the distribution uh, of wealth in the United States. He discovers that the top 1%, so again, he's using the language of the 1% in 1890s, uh, owns about 50% of the wealth and uh it's very interesting just to see you know how his uh uh, his dissertation is is reviewed by his advisors and and it gets really criticized and he never finds a job he kind of gets pushed out Uh, so that's again just to see how you know this is all political and these statistics often have a political side to them uh and just one more thing about the whole rise of the, uh, the, the the demise of the moral statistics the example i like to give for instance is Just it changes the whole way that you imagine your society. So I think, you know, many Americans today, and rightfully so in some ways, see their society as kind of like the most developed society. And one of the reasons they do that is because we think of development in terms of GDP. So, you know, America's GDP is very, very high. Um, But if we were to kind of think about it in terms of like the moral statistics, well, one of the most popular moral statistics of the 1840s was incarceration rates. Well, if incarceration rates were used today as, you know, the metric of development, America would be probably the most failed nation on earth. America, as we know, except for maybe North Korea, has the highest incarceration rates in the world. So, So here I also talk about, you know, the cultural things that it does, the way it makes you think about, you know, progress in general.
0: Well now I would like to make a difficult question, which is uh, uh, also about the Rockefeller that you mentioned at the end. Uh, there is a, a field of study in, in particular in, in management, but also in economics, about the role the geostrategic, the geopolitical role of the Rockefeller Foundation in developing management ideas, for example, or in your case would be in developing in economics. Uh, idea. Uh, so, do you think that, uh, and you also mentioned earlier that the, the Bureau is, um, is not a, a public, uh, uh, the MBI is not a public institution, but it is a private institution. So I mean, why are you trying to argue that there was a kind of conspiracy that there was, uh, as in other cases, we approved through historiographical work of uh, the Rockefeller Foundation or the Rockefeller family in uh, going towards this indicator?
1: So i don't think it's a conspiracy uh it, this is just power this is how power works uh there's no conspiracy here i think that the rockefellers uh i think genuinely believed that um, measuring a society by how much income it produces was the right way to go i think they genuinely believed that this was you know the best way to make america uh, pro- uh, kind of progress uh and so in that sense i, I don't think it was a conspiracy um, but but definitely they're using their power in order to push this very specific uh, way of, of counting, of viewing, of calculating, and make and ha- making sure that it becomes one of the more dominant forms by you know giving millions of dollars to these institutions like the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, and just two things on this. Um, one of the, my last chapters before the epilogue is on kind of like the rise of the corporation and the inc- inc- consolidation. Of American uh, the economy into you know what, what historians American historians call the the great merger movement where you know a lot of small companies merged into giant corporations, and, and and Rockefeller in a way fits this kind of part of the story because what I really think Rockefeller is doing is you know he's he's been running a corporation for many years and I think he's just beginning to use these as you said management techniques and these ways of you know counting and valuing his corporation. All he's simply doing is saying, this is a good way to value our society in general. You know, this is how we should manage and control and organize uh, the government and economic policy. And so what he's really doing, and this is, you know, this is a big part of my book. It shows how, you know, these techniques, these management techniques, these calculation techniques, these accounting techniques that first developed in the business sphere, how they end up kind of seeping out of the business sphere and they begin to kind of, you know, conquer other areas of life, whether it's, you know, economic policy or culture or or, or things like that. So I, I think that's really what's going on here in that sense, is that he's just kind of, you know, imagining it, it, it society as kind of like a big uh, a corporation that needs to be uh, managed accordingly. And like any corporation, you know, revenue is a big part of the how you measure the success and failure of a corporation, and therefore it becomes an important way or the way he thinks that you should measure the success and failure of a nation. Um, and, and so so that's
0: but, kind of what really say, kind of how I sorry. try to, yeah. Uh, no, well, earlier I mentioned a conspiracy. But for example, I don't know, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has contributed to the development of management education in the Western sphere during the Cold War. And the, the plan was to use these uh, to consolidate the Western model uh, among the, the allies, uh, uh, among the nations that were under the, the sphere of influence of the United States. And this is relatively proved. In the case of the GDP, in fact, I, I should admit that probably this would have been a wrong battle because, in fact, the Soviet Union adopted, if I'm not wrong, the GDP, uh, although it was slightly different, the use and the measure, but uh, this model uh, was developed also there. But now you mentioned the, the, the merger movement and the importance of corporations in the history of, of, of the United States. And you come from an institution, Harvard Business School, where Alfred Chandler worked. So he died a few years ago and he couldn't read your book clearly. But what he would have said if he read your your book?
1: Oh, that's a great question. What would Alfred Chandler think of my book? Um, I think there are parts of the book that Alfred Chandler would very much enjoy. I think he was a man who was very interested in, you know, how... Um, businessmen uh, view the world, how they, you know, quantify the world, how they calculate. Um, but I think the difference, one of the main differences between someone like me and someone like Alfred Chandler, is when it comes to issues of kind of progress, but also kind of, you know, how capitalism actually works. So, it, just again, very generally, I, I, um, I would say that in most of Alfred Chandler's books, the heroes of the story, that the people who are driving the story forward are not capitalists. They're not profit-maximizing capitalists. Those people are actually, usually in Chandler's books, like The Visible Hand, they're in the background. You almost never see them. Uh, the people that Chandler chose to focus on is more of the middle management, you know, the cost accounting guys, the guys who are, you know, just, you know, working to try to make the most efficient machines or processes possible. And so while I definitely agree with Chandler, and I've been influenced a lot by him, and I write actually a lot about cost accounting in the book, And I actually try to show that developments like the rise of cost of living statistics had a lot to do with the rise of cost accounting, uh, except that instead of kind of measuring, you know, the cost of how much it would cost to build a certain machine, people were beginning to think of, well, how much does it cost to make sure, you know, to build a human being and make sure that he's productive enough in order to work in the factories. Um, But on the other hand, I think one of the biggest uh, changes that we've seen in business history in the last few years is that... People like me and other historians like Noah McGore and John Levy and there are other ones are really kind of trying to bring forward not only the middle management, but also, you know, the financiers themselves. There's uh, uh, another example here, Richard White, his book on railroads, you know, and this is becoming kind of a new emphasis. And that's where you really kind of get the capitalism uh, uh, side of things because you get, you know, investments and, and trying to maximize shareholder value and, and, and things like that. And so um, so I would say that those were the part of the books. I don't know if you would enjoy that part, but I think that's where this book kind of and other books of its ilk in the last few years have kind of uh, diverged from the Chandlerian uh, uh, story.
0: Yes, yeah. well, the work of Chandler also belongs to a different generation and this could be also a, a, an explanation of your different point of view, perhaps, but I, I like not only those parts, I like the old book and I even like the paper, it's a beautiful book that's even a pleasure just to hold in your hands, it's a very beautiful edition. So congratulations again for this book, I, I would like to ask you if you have projects for the future and if you're already working on something else.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, I have a few uh, small projects that I'm working on now. I'm interested, this is kind of a continuation of the last chapter, not the epilogue, the last chapter. I've become interested in uh, the history of cost-benefit analysis, which is obviously kind of linked to these ideas, Um, and I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested in uh, how, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, um, I've So actually something we didn't talk about in the book is that the book also looks a lot about economists. So the last chapter really focuses on Irving Fisher. And while I was reading about Irving Fisher, I kind of, you know, became fascinated again uh, with the rise of neoclassical economics. And uh, my degree at Tel Aviv University uh, here in Israel was a very kind of neoclassical degree. And um, so I kind of know the basics, but uh, it kind of like was struck again, just returning to that, how different. Uh, the way uh, Irving Fisher and the neoclassical economists of the 20th century, how different they kind of imagine the world uh, from people and even economists of the 19th century. And so I think my new book project is going to be on the the rise of the idea of choice and how choice has become so dominant in the way that uh, Americans have come to perceive both themselves uh, and, you know, free to choose, of course, is the classic uh, Maxim that we always hear by Milton Friedman, but not only has choice and the rise of choice, and it's of course you know a key part of of, of economics. There's public choice, there's rational choice in general. There's choice theory, uh, and you know neoclassical economics in, in in general is a very you know uh, it's a very its methodology is very individualist. It's very interested in you know questions of how people make choices. How do they prefer, uh, behavioral economics in this sense uh, is very similar as well. So I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested in the flip side of things, and that is, you know, and this by the way gets into management studies uh, is that when did, you know, management people and people in business schools become really fascinated and also, you know, empirically studying choice? You know, how do people make decisions? How are choices made? And then how these studies uh, went on to kind of basically influence our everyday lives. Uh, So just to give you one example, right now I'm looking at Uh, the design of supermarkets, how supermarkets were designed in America in the 1970s and 80s, and, you know, how these theories of choice and how people choose uh, actually physically shape the supermarket, whether it's, you know, uh, what music should be playing in the background when you're walking down the aisle, (laughs) uh, because, and of course, you know, you can go to the Journal of, of Consumer Marketing from the 1970s, and there are Great studies on you know oh well if I put this music on then they're going to buy this stuff but if I put this music on then they'll choose this stuff and again it's all about this question of choice uh, but also you know like where should I put the goods you know where and so so I'm very interested in kind of uh, it's actually a term I took from a, um, from uh, the economist who just won the, the Nobel Prize uh, Richard Thaler actually- uh, I'm interested in choice choice architects uh, I'm interested in kind of like the people who kind of build The options, the menus, the choices that were made and how they're influenced by economic theory, but other things. So that pretty much, I mean, I'm just getting started here, uh, but that's pretty much the, the new book project.
0: Well, this seems another very fascinating topic and also very very timely. Uh, so, well, we look forward to, to read these new books, uh, but for now, congratulations for The Pricing of Progress, Economic Indicators and the Capitalization of American Life, uh, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Thank you very much, Ellie Cook.
1: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.